If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love for you to take your copy of the Word of God and find the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 7. Hebrews chapter number 7. We're going to pick up where we left off, uh, and we'll pick up in verse number 1. But before we do, uh, I really, this is a very lengthy passage, so I'm not going to ask you to stand. But I, I would like for us to, to read it so we can kind of get the overview. I've had a couple of people uh, this week, David, stop me and say, and said, Pastor, said, uh, book of Hebrews is a hard book. It, it, why is it so hard to understand? And uh, David, you and I had this conversation just a few minutes ago. Uh, the reason why it is a difficult book is because it was written to Messianic Jews. And see, these Messianic Jews had this whole religious practice down pat. And uh, they, they really, really uh, thought they were doing right. And then when Jesus showed up, he changed the whole thing. I mean, he, sp he split the Testaments. I mean, there's a reason why we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the Old Testament, that, that don't work anymore. The New Testament works. And so the writer of Hebrews comes on the scene. He says, look, uh, you don't need to go back to Judaism because it don't work. I mean, it's not going to be... It's not going to be what you need. You've got what you need. You've got Jesus. So these, these Christians, they were born again. They were saved. They were just struggling with the fact that it was out with the old and in with the new. And that's always a struggle for us, isn't it? When we do away with something old and we have to come and do something new. Uh, I remember when, uh, when we got, I remember when, when they started taking the Red Book hymnals out for the celebration hymnal. Lord, help, Jeff. I, I mean, out with the old, in with the new. My goodness. That must have been what the Jews were feeling when they said Jesus is, is, the, is number one. He's better than the Red Book hymnal. I mean, he, they were just really encouraging them along those lines. And so it is a difficult book. But it's one by which we cannot learn or we cannot um, understand. We can learn and we can understand. And uh, that's why we're going through it. And uh, what a tremendous encouragement you've been to say that, wow, that really has made sense to me. Let me call your attention, though, because we'll run out of time real fast because there's 28 verses here. And there's a lot of things to cover. But I want you to notice in chapter 6, verse number 20, where we left off last week. Remember, last week, uh, I believe Paul wrote this, this letter. It doesn't matter if you believe that or not. It's fine. Some, some believe Luke wrote it. Others believe other uh, Barnabas and other things. And that's, that's fine. We know that the ultimate author is God. God wrote the whole Bible. And he inspired men to do so. I just hold, I just hold to uh, that uh, the pen was held in, in Paul's hand. And so he says, remember last week we talked about Paul saying, Look, Jesus Christ is superior than Aaron who was the very first high priest. He's superior than Moses. And then we talked about the week before that, he's superior to angels. And then before that, he's superior to the prophets. And so he says, Jesus Christ is far more superior than the prophets, to angels, to Moses, and to Aaron. And now what he's going to do, he's going to say, look, Jesus is more superior. He is greater than. He is a more excellent Savior because he's greater than the old Levitical order. That old order that came out of Aaron is over. And Jesus is more superior than that. And he uses a term to shut this thing down and to prove it. 
And you see it, he's mentioned it several times throughout the course of chapter 5 and chapter 6. And that is the term, the order of the Levitical, or or excuse me, the order of Melchizedek. Let me call your attention to chapter 6, verse 20. Look at what he says here. He says, whether the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is, that statement right there shut the door on the Levitical priesthood. So that it's over. We're not following the order of the Levitical priesthood. We're following the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is that important? That, that's what he's going to prove here this morning. He's going to say, well, here's the reason why this is so vitally important. Let's read the text and see what we can glean from it. And then I'll give you some points, and I hope it'll be an encouragement to you. Uh, my desire is that you walk away today changed. I, I preach for change. The first change I'd love to see is, is if you don't know Christ as Savior and where you're going to spend eternity, that that'll be settled today. And number two, that if you're born again child of God, this will strengthen your um, desire to get deeper into the Word of God and that we wouldn't be satisfied with the milk of the Word, but we get in there into the meat of the Word and continue to grow and mature in our faith. So look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, for, or this is the term because, because this Melchizedek, so he's going to give the reason why Melchizedek is important. He says he's the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, uh, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First being by interpretation king of righteousness. And after that also king of Salem. Which is king of peace. The term Salem has actually has a a double fold meaning. Just so you'll know. This is a parenthetical thought here. It's not in my notes. But I thought I'd give it to you. The term Salem is an, is an, an archaic word. It's used for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was Salem. Okay. And we don't call it Salem anymore. We call it Jerusalem. But it also means, by definition, peace. So peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace, talking about uh, Melchizedek. Verse number uh, 3. He says, he's without a father, without a mother, uh, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, who... Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi who received the office of the priesthood have a, command, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. You hear what he's saying there, real quick, and I'll touch base a little bit more on it. He says, because you come out of the loins of Abraham, because you're Abraham's descendants, the tithe that he gave, you gave too. That's what he's saying. Okay, verse number 6. He says, but he uh, whose descent is not counted from them received the tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promise. And without all contradictions, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, But there he receiveth to them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. And as I may say, Levi also, or Levi who also receiveth tithes, paid tithes to Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. 
If, therefore, perfection were made by the Levitical priesthood. Now, let me stop right there because let me say something parenthetically about this word perfection. And I'll touch on this here in a second as well. A lot of times when you see the word perfect in the New Testament, it means mature, to mature up. Uh, here in this passage of Scripture, it carries a different definition. It means perfection. It means to be perfect. And so he says here in the text, he says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, which is what they thought, that the Levitical priesthood could bring about perfection, he goes on to say, look, For under it people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So why is it then, if the order of Aaron, uh, if it's able to bring about perfection, why don't we just stick with the order of Aaron? But we don't stick with the order of Aaron because we are going with the order of Melchizedek. Why is that? Verse number 12. For the priesthood being changed because we changed priest. That's why. We're no longer going with the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. We're now going after the order of of Melchizedek look at what he says in verse 13 for he of whom else things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe let me say this parenthetically he say this you've got the Levitical tribe and where the Messiah's coming from is going to come from another tribe a different tribe not the tribe that you're thinking of he says he's coming from a different tribe so uh, let, let's move on he says of which no man gave attendance to the altar he said the tribe that the Messiah is going to come out of was not a Levitical tribe, didn't serve, if you will, the altar like the Levitical priesthood did. All right? Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. So now he's giving us insight where the Messiah, what tribe he's coming out of. He's coming out of the tribe of Judah. He says, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Now, it's important to understand that word similitude there means picture. Picture. Now, why is that important? Well, because, like I said last week, a lot of people read this passage of Scripture and they want to call Melchizedek a Christology or a... a, 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 a what word am I trying to say? Any Bible college students? What? There you go, typology, yeah. A typology, a Christophany, they're saying that this is Christ. No, this, this is a picture. This man really lived, he really died. And he typifies, he is a picture of Jesus Christ. All right, so keep going. Verse 16, he says, Who was made, not after the law, or after, uh, not after, uh, the law of a carnal commandment, but after a, the power of an endless life. For he testifieth. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's where he began. That's where he's going to end. But look at verse 18. Because, or for, there is verily a disannulling of the commandments going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect. Man, if you mark in your Bibles, I'd underline that because that is hitting home. The law made nothing perfect. But, the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. That better hope is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath, 
But this with an oath by him that saith unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, when it comes to Melchizedek, we, find not, we don't find a lot written about him. You find him in Genesis chapter 14, a little brief thing about him, a little brief history about him in Genesis chapter 14. Then a thousand years later, David in Psalms chapter 100 gives us another insight into Melchizedek, just a little blip to call his name and bring him back up again a thousand years uh, after Genesis 14. And then a th another thousand years after that, you have the book of Hebrews being written where we find a great deal about Melchizedek as we're reading here together. Look at what he says. He goes on to say this in the text in verse 22. So, uh, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So he says, because Jesus, when you look at Melchizedek, you should see Jesus. That is, Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek as a king priest is a picture of who Jesus is. And because Jesus is who he says he is, that is the Messiah, he not only fulfilled the law, but he brought in a new testament. Our Bible's divided into two, two books, right? We've got the Old Testament books and the New Testament books. He, Jesus is a better testament. We'll say something about that here in just a moment. Verse 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not uh, suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, talking about Jesus, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, where he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Peter says that too. He says Jesus Christ died once for all. That's what the writer here is saying in the text here. He says he didn't have to, he didn't have to sacrifice on behalf of his own sin because he was sinless. But he gave himself as a sacrifice for the sin of everybody. And he did it once for all. And look at what he says in verse 28. He says, because or for the law maketh men high priest which have infirmity. The word infirmity means weakness. And weakness is a direct derivative of sin. Men have sin. That's why they have to offer sacrifices for themselves. That's why they put that chain or that rope on the high priest when he goes into the Holy of Holies. If he hadn't confessed all of his sin when he gets in there, God judges him and he dies and they have to drag him out by the rope uh, because there's sin. There's infirmity in his life, not Jesus. Jesus, blessed God, walked into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled his own blood uh, on the mercy seat and said, It is finished. And it's, and it's done, and it's over. And then he goes on to say here, I love this part. He says, uh, men have infirmities, but the word of the oath, whose oath? God's oath. What did God, God said, I will not repent. It will be by the Son of the living God that people be saved. John three sixteen. He says, by that oath, he says, uh, which was since the law, maketh the Son, capital S, 
talking about Jesus. And he's not talking about Jesus being made. Jesus existed eternally forever. But he's speaking about how he was, that the word made there is conveying to us he was born of a virgin. And he was the son, but he was just not any son. That's why it's a capital S. He was the son of God. And he was born of a virgin into this earth. Okay? So here he is, who is consecrated forevermore. That is, he has been separated, commissioned. It's placed upon Jesus. There's no other way to be saved. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Amen? Isn't that a powerful that is a powerful chapter. So, now, let me break it down for you real quick, and uh, we'll give you some um, notes for all you type A personalities out there that'll be a blessing to you, uh, and I hope that, that this will encourage you uh, throughout the course of the week. So, what happens here now in the text is, again, he's saying it's over. The Levitical priesthood's over. And here is the reason why. So he's going to give these, he's going to give four, four precious little facts here uh, that'll be an encouragement to you. Fact number one, he talks about the presentation of the facts. Verses one, two, and three, he presents the facts as to why the Levitical order is over. Because Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. And he does so in a quite unique way. He does it with, actually, he does it with one word, but we see that there are many things that transpire throughout this one word. So let me show you, if I could, in verses 1, 2, and 3, why Jesus' new order is more excellent than the old Levitical Aaronic order. Number one, here's the first reason. Because a universal priesthood is greater than a national priesthood. A universal priesthood is greater than a national priesthood. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 7. He says, excuse me, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. Now, I don't want to deal with the slaughter of kings, okay? So we're not dealing with that today. What I want you to notice here is this phrase, The Most High God. Why? Because that is the important word for this morning. It is conveying to us that Melchizedek was a universal priesthood which was greater than a national priesthood. That's the message he's conveying. And this message that he's conveying here is that uh, he focuses on not the, uh, the old archaic word Salem meaning Jerusalem. He focuses it on Salem meaning peace. Do you see it there? Look in the latter part uh, of, of verse number 2. He says there, To whom Abraham also gave a tenth of all, first being by the interpretation of, of king of righteousness, and after that of the king of Salem, which he's already said one time, but he's just said it a second time, which is, now he's about to define it, king of peace. So he's focusing on the peaceful aspect of Melchizedek to point to the universality, if you would, of his priesthood. Now, when you look at Melchizedek and you think about him being a picture of Jesus, the picture is simply this. Jesus is a universal priest. He is not just a priest for the nation of Israel. He is a high priest for the whole entire humanity, for the whole world, for everybody. He is a universal priest. The Levitical priesthood was only for Israel. The Israelites would come and those high priests would sacrifice their uh, animals so that their sins would be forgiven for just the, the, the Israelites. But when Jesus came on the scene, 
Jesus died once and for all, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for everyone. Now, how is the writer of Hebrews going to convey this to these Jews that are reading this? He does it by one word. It's the word God. You see it there? He calls God the most high God. It's important that we recognize the article, the. Why? Because the article is pointing to who we're talking about. That's God. The God. Capital G. The God. And the most high is the level by which we raise that God. And that is, he is the most high God. He's higher than the highest. He's greater than the great. He is the only one that can take our sins away. He is the most high God. Now, when it came to the word God, the Jews found it to be such a holy name, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even say it. As a matter of fact, God, in his covenant name, he says, I want you to call me Jehovah or Yahweh. I want you to call me Yahweh. The Jews, even to this day, find it such a holy name, they won't even say it. And when they spell it, they spell it capital G dash D. You may have noticed that. That's the reason why. They do not want to say Jehovah they, or Yahweh. They do not want to speak that. As a matter of fact, uh, we don't even know the correct rendering by spelling of it because they wouldn't say it. And so in regards to this, what they call uh, God is Adonai. Adonai. And we see this throughout the course of Scripture. When you're reading Scripture and you see capital L, and then you have a lowercase capital O, capital R, capital D, that right there is where they would specifically say Adonai in recognition to God Almighty. And so we have that even in our English translation today. But, watch this. When you get to chapter 7 of Hebrews in verse number 1, he says, the most high God, G-O-D. Guess what? This is the Hebrew word Elohim. El Elyon is the, is the correct rendering of it. El Elyon. What does that mean? El Elyon is the universal name given to God, speaking to him as the God of all. Not just the God of the Israelites, not just the God that was given to Israel, but he is the God of all, the universal name for God that represents that he is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is God above all the nations. He's above all dispensations. He's above all the ages, if you would. Any distinctions that might exist throughout the course of history, God is over that. He is the most high God. He is the God of the Jews, but he's also the God of the Gentiles. He's saying when you look Look at Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek. You see that a universal priesthood is greater than a national priesthood. Only the Levites could, could uh, sacrifice for the Israelites. But Melchizedek being a king and being the king of peace brought peace throughout all the land. And all the land received that peace by which his sacrifice would have been given. That sacrifice was fulfilled. It was pictured in Melchizedek. It was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Number two. Not only does he say a universal priesthood is greater than a national priesthood, but he also says a royal priesthood is greater than a tribal priesthood. Look at what the scripture says again. He, if you have your pens, follow along with me. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, I'd underline the word king. As a matter of fact, underline the word king every time you see it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, not that kings, but the other, you don't have to underline that one because that's not in reference to Melchizedek. 
The Bible says, But he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, king, there's another reference to Melchizedek, of righteousness, after that also king of Salem, there's another uh, uh, recognition of Melchizedek, which is king of peace, another recognition. In two verses, he uses the word king four times in reference to Melchizedek. What's he referring to? He's referring to a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood is greater than a tribal priesthood. Because the word king is used four times, he's pointing out the fact that a Levite could never be king. He could not possess royalty. He was to be a servant of the Most High God in regards to the religion uh, of getting people's sins forgiven for a temporary short period of time. Zechariah spoke about this in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13, when he says, Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, capital O-L-O-R-D, all caps, and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. That is a reference to Jesus Christ. While it's pictured in Melchizedek, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the king priest, capable, if you would, of being a royal priesthood, which is greater than just a tribal priesthood. It's greater than just the tribe of Israel. It is the whole wide world. This is why Jesus is greater than the Levitical system. Number three, here's a third reason. He says the third reason is a dual priesthood is greater than a singular priesthood. Look at what the Bible says in verse number two again. He once again uses a dual phrase. He says king of righteousness and also king of Salem or which is king of peace. Now, he's already dealt with the fact of his dual priesthood, him being a king and a priest. Now the duplicity is placed upon what kind of king he is. And this duality, if you would, of his priesthood is greater than a singular priesthood because we find here Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He's both. He carries this duality about him and this dual uh, uh, love by which he has for us that he loves us so much that he has this righteousness within inside him that righteousness that is that is which is acceptable to God it pertains to integrity and virtue and purity and correctness and what he's saying to the Jews is when you look back at Melchizedek you see that you see virtue integrity purity correct thinking and feeling and acting on behalf of God in blessing people in particular with the blessing of peace he gives peace that picture that Melchizedek gave is fulfilled in Jesus Christ Jesus fulfilled this order and is after the order of Melchizedek Romans chapter 5 verse 1 gives us this very same insight where it says therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ the word justified there is counted righteous we have been counted righteous just as if we'd never sinned counted righteous placed up in the heavenlies why because of our faith that we have and that faith brings on peace how many of you Remember the day you got saved. Man, I remember the day I got saved. I, listen, I can't explain it. I didn't hear the hallelujah chorus. A bright light didn't shine on me at the altar. But I'm telling you, when I received Christ as my Savior, I had such peace. Man, it passed all understanding. 
And, and even today, like, I, I, and I've tried real hard today to keep myself under control, but the first, that 930 service, Phil, you sang that song, Is He Worthy? I wept like a baby over there, and I get up and I'm snotty, you know, trying to preach, and I just couldn't, couldn't, get, uh, couldn't get going. But I tried to control myself here because I think about the peace that he gave. I mean, you understand, I was destined for hell. I'm going to split hell wide open. But because of the blood of Jesus, and because that he's after the order of Melchizedek, he died once and for all for my sins, making a way that I could get to God by faith. And that faith brings such peace and hope to know that I don't have to do anything to get to him. I, I didn't bring my animal to sacrifice today. I'm coming as a living sacrifice. Number four, got to hurry. I'm running out of time already. A personal priesthood is greater than a pedigreed priesthood. That, this is the fourth presentation of the facts. He says a personal priesthood is greater than a pedigreed priesthood. What do you mean? Look at verse 3. Notice what he says here. He says, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, what he's saying here in the text, he's... he's He's saying here that there is no genealogy when it comes to uh, Melchizedek. You can't find it. They didn't write it down. Nobody knows who his father was. Nobody knows who his mother. It's not saying that he didn't have one. He's just simply saying nobody wrote this down. We don't know of. We don't know where he, where he came from. We know that he's a king. We know that he's a priest. But we're not sure who his mother is. We're not sure where his father is. And the point that he's making is this. When it comes to the Levitical priesthood, your pedigree is vitally important because you can't be a high priest unless you come out of the tribe of Levi. He says, not so with Jesus. Jesus come from the very throne of God. And because he comes from the throne of God, it is a picture. He is like, the, like uh, Melchizedek. In his personal aspect, when you saw me, it was Melchizedek, Melchizedek alone. It was not Melchizedek, and his father was so-and-so, and his mother was so-and-so, and he was born on this day, and then so forth and so on, like it was with Aaron, and like it was with all the rest of the prophets in the Levitical system, where they had this long pedigree of, oh, look at me, I'm the, I'm the fourth line in regards to, to this priesthood. He says, no, look, the bottom line is simply this, when you look at Melchizedek, you see that he had no father and mother, but you realize that in Jesus it was fulfilled. His father was God himself. His mother was the Virgin Mary. He was born of a virgin. His pedigree was not what you would say was stellar. He was born of a virgin, of a lowly of lows. He didn't have an awesome pedigree. He came just like we are. And dear friend, I don't know about you, but that's a great encouragement to my heart because listen... To think that my Savior came as a lowly child. Not born in some kingdom or palace. Not born in some priestly uh, back room somewhere. But was born in a manger. Born of a virgin. Laid in a cattle trough. He says, when you think about Melchizedek, you think about Jesus. Number five, here's the fifth one. An eternal priesthood is greater than a temporary priesthood. Look at what he says in verse 3. Here's the last part. He said, abideth a priest continually. The word continual there is the Hebrew word 
uh, a Greek, Greek word there uh, for the Hebrews, perpetual, translated, uh, continual. It is not that Melchizedek lived forever, but that the order of his priesthood continues on even to this day. The order of his priesthood is the reality. He could not have lived forever because he would be Jesus if that be the case. No, Melchizedek died. But the order by which he served as a king priest lives on through Jesus Christ. Jesus took up the order of Melchizedek being a king and a priest. And he carried out its function in a universal fashion. So that he might bring peace to mankind. And this peace that was demonstrated to mankind was that he being the sinless son of God sacrificed himself on a cross so that you and I could be saved. This is the presentation of the facts. Then number two, very quickly, follow along fast and we'll go through this part fast. The second thing is the demonstration of proof. He then says in verse 4 through 10, let me show you the proof that Melchizedek is greater than than the Levitical order. Here it is. Number one, Abraham tithes. Abraham tithes. Abraham takes a tenth of everything that he has and he gives it to Melchizedek. Melchizedek receives it. And then what does Melchizedek do? This is the second point. He blesses Abraham. And the bottom line in this is just simply this. That the blesser, The blesser, the one that blesses, which is Melchizedek, the blesser indisputably was superior to Abraham. And because of that, what the writer says then, he turns and he says, and because every one of you came out of the loins of of Abraham, you gave that same offering. You submitted yourself. And he says, everybody gives you tithes. Everybody gives the church tithes. Everybody does that. He says, but the bottom line is simply this. You gave Melchizedek tithes, signifying that his order is greater than your order. He gives, if you would, the demonstration of the proof. Then number three, here's the third one, verses 11 through 19. He gives the imperfections of the old order. He's just building his case. Here he comes with the next one. And he says, now, not only that, he says, let me give you the the imperfections of the old order. Your old order that you guys are governing over has some major imperfections. This is probably one of my favorite parts of the text in verses 11 through 19 because here in this section, what we see is Paul's going to point out these two imperfections of the old order and he begins in verse number 11 by laying out the standard he uses the term and we've already talked about it perfection which means just that you had to be perfect however this perfection was not obtained nobody became perfect because of the law and so we find here that when we see that this perfection was not manifested which if it was manifested if we were perfect by the law then we wouldn't need Jesus We wouldn't need the blood of a Savior. We could be saved by the law, but we can't be saved by the law because the law is a mirror that shows us that we can't do it. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And so here we are, and we we find here in the text the questions being asked of the writer, why would God have provided another priesthood? Why would God say that this is after the order of Melchizedek if what you had was working? What you have is not working, and because it's not working, there's got to be some imperfections in it. And I want you to notice the language that he uses to point out these imperfections. I'll show it to you. It's found in verse number 18. Look, if you will, at the text. The Bible says, For there is verily 
a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Man, if you've got your pens, I'd underline that word weakness and unprofitableness because he just pointed out the two imperfections of the law. He says, here's what's wrong with the law. Number one, it's weak. That's what he said right there. The law is weak. How is it weak? Three things. Number one, it could not fully redeem. Look at verse number 11 again. He says in verse number 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law. What further need was there that there was another priest that should rise up after the order of Melchizedek and not be called the order of Aaron? He says there's an imperfection here. Your law, this Levitical priesthood, the law that we have under the Levitical priesthood, and this practice of the Levitical order does not work because it does not redeem. It only covers the sin for temporary, just a little while. He says, and, and if, it, if it did work, then Jesus would be after, or the Messiah would be after the order of Aaron. But he's not after the order of Aaron. It's very plain. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Here's number two, the second reason why it's weak. Number two, it was changed. It was changed. Look at verse number 12. He says, for the priesthood being changed. Not that it's going to be changed. He said, it's already changed. What changed? <laughs> the grave's empty. That's what changed. It's empty. Jesus died and rose again on the third day. He ripped the veil from the top to the bottom in the Holy of Holies. There is no more Levitical system. Jesus fulfilled it all. Amen. And then here's the third reason why it's weak. It's found in verses 13 through 17. It was, it's weak because the Messiah had to come out of another tribe. Everybody thought the Levitical tribe was, man, that was it. I mean, they thought they were hot snot in a pot, but really they were just a cold booger on a paper plate. I mean, they did. They thought they were it. And God said, I'll show you. The Messiah's not coming out of the tribe of Levi. He's coming out of the tribe of Judah. And we see that, just that very thing, as we study the Word of God. He says, listen, the Levitical order is weak, number two. Not only does he say it was weak, but he also uses a second term. You see it there again in verse number 18. He says it's unprofitable. Unprofitableness. You know what that is? That is uh, useless. He, he says it's useless. Your, your Levitical order is useless. And here's the reason why. This is found in verse 19. He says it's unprofitable thereof because, see the word for? Because the law made nothing perfect. Remember what the law does? The law shows us that we're sinners. Remember what the law does? It's a schoolmaster that, to bring us to Jesus Christ. He said the law didn't make you perfect. It just showed that you were imperfect. He said, but, oh, look at this. I'll get excited. Man, my heart starts racing when I get to this, con this little conjunction. But, he says, but, the bringing in of a better hope did. Who's that better hope? It's Jesus. Jesus is the better hope. He said what the law couldn't do, Jesus did. The law could not bring hope. The law only brought damnation. But a better hope came when Jesus came on the scene. Look at what he says. By the which we draw nigh unto God. We draw close to God. He tells us here in the word of God, he says, it's, he says your old Levitical order is useless because it cannot save anyone. 
You know what that tells us today? Listen to me very carefully. It tells us that religion can't save you. Religion cannot save you. These are the imperfections of the old order. And then he closes in verses 20 through 28. Here's my final thing. I got two minutes. I'll give it to you very quickly. And uh, so listen fast. Here, here are the perfections of the new order. He said, here's some perfections. Let me show you why the new order with Jesus Christ is perfect. Here it is. Number one, through Jesus Christ, we have a more powerful testament. A more powerful testament. Look at what the Bible says here in verse, it's, it's found in verses 20 through 22, but look at verse 22 in particular, as my time's getting away. He says, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. He says, with surety, Jesus made a better testament. How, how many testaments are our, are our Bible split into? Two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you know what the word testament means? The word testament means covenant. The Old Testament is full of the Old Covenant. The New Testament is full of the New Covenant. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is a more powerful testament. He's a more powerful covenant. His covenant is everlasting. His covenant is perfect. His covenant is virtuous. His covenant is beyond anything that you could ever imagine. It is an eternal covenant. It's where Jesus was going since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Number two, very quickly. Not only is it a more powerful testament, but it is a more powerful life. Jesus is a more powerful life. This is found in verses 21 through 27. For, the, for time's sake, I want us to focus in particular on verses 24 through 27. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, but this man, talking about Jesus Christ, this man, because he continueth ever, that is, he was from everlasting to everlasting, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, who is harmless, who is undefiled, who is separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. He said, Jesus is a more powerful life. Because he didn't sacrifice for his own sins first, then sacrifice for yours. No, he was perfect. He was sinless. He was holy. He went once and for all and sacrificed himself for mankind. He is a more powerful life. And then number three, the third one is in verse 28. He says, in regards to the perfections of the new order, that Jesus is a more powerful oath. A more powerful oath oath. Look at verse 28. He says this. For the law maketh men high priest which have infirmity. Again, what does infirmity mean? Weakness. What is this weakness that they have? Sin. They have sin in their life. Again, that's why they sacrifice on, them, on their behalf first. But, he says, the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forever. 
Dear friend, according to the Word of God, the Bible says Jesus has a more powerful oath. His Word is more powerful. And what does that simply mean? Number one, it means he was from the beginning. He said he was sent to the law. He says, look, you know who come up with the law? Bless God, Jesus did. If he came up with it, he can change it if he wants to. He was before the law. And this whole time he's saying the Messiah is coming. Uh, he goes, number two, he says, for he was always the focus. You see what he says there in the text. In verse 28, he uses the word son, capital S. That is to point to the focus of the matter. Jesus has always been the focus of what's coming down the pike. It was never supposed to be the Levitical system, period. Uh, forever. It was supposed to be the Levitical system temporarily until the Messiah came. And then he ripped the veil once again, doing away with that system. And then, number three, here's the third one. He will always be the only way to God. He says he is consecrated forever. The word consecrated means to finish. He's finished. He finished the work, but it also carries a dual meaning. It means he perfected the work. He finished and perfected the work. What the old covenant could not do, Jesus did. And when you look to the order of Melchizedek, you see a picture of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is the picture. Jesus is the fulfillment. And because of that, Jesus, the order by which he falls under, Melchizedek, a, a kingly priest, is greater than than the Old Testament order. He's greater than any of the Levitical priests. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater than um, uh, Moses. He's greater than the prophets. And he's greater than the angels. You see what he's doing here? The writer, he's just building one on top of the other. Jesus is greater than anything you can ever imagine. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus. Jesus is a better sacrifice. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I love what John 17, 4 says. And Jesus said this, and I'm closing up my Bible. Jesus said this in John 17, 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. You know what? When you read chapter 7, here's what you walk away with. You walk away with the fact that religion won't save you. We're living in a day where we want religion to save us. Here's what some people say. Some people say, well, <clears throat> in order for me to get saved, I've got to join the church. That's not right. It's not what the Bible says. Nope, you don't have to join the church to be saved. Some people say, well, in order for me to be saved, I've got to be baptized. Nope, that's not what Scripture says. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can't get to heaven uh, by being baptized. Okay, that's not what Scripture says. Some people say, well, uh, I, I, I have to, uh, I got to partake of the sacraments. You know, there's a religion out there that says it's called transubstantiation. When they have the Lord's Supper, they say Jesus comes out of heaven and he Again, multiple times, multiple times, steps out of heaven and goes into the cracker. And the cracker literally becomes the body of Jesus. And the juice literally becomes the blood. And when you eat that, you cannibalize Jesus Christ. That's what they teach. That's what they say that you've got to do in order to go to heaven. That's not what Hebrews chapter 7 says. Hebrews chapter 7 says he did it once. He died one time. He sacrificed himself once. He does not come out of heaven and sacrifice himself every time into that cracker. 
No, it is a memorial. That Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The word in the Greek there gives us the idea of remembering what happened in the past. What happened in the past? Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to Calvary, died on Calvary's cross, was buried, and on the third day he rose again so that you and I and whoever wants to be saved, whoever, you come to Jesus and he saves you. It's not a preacher. It's not a priest. It's not a religion. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's bow for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Uh, Dear friend, today is the day of your salvation. Today, the Scripture says, if you would repent of your sins and trust Jesus, you can be saved today. Romans 10, 9. Simply says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So, dear friend, why are you trusting religion when all you need to do is come have a relationship with Jesus? Dear friend, would you do that today? You say, preacher, how do I do that? I don't know how to even, where to even start to do that. Well, dear friend, if you recognize Jesus as the Messiah in your head, I'm going to ask you to do what the Scripture says. Mix that with faith in your heart. And would you say something like this to Jesus, from your heart to God's heart, right there in the quietness and stillness of of this prayer, would you say this in your heart? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning, I ask you to save my soul. Today, I repent of my sin. And I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I will live for you. In Jesus' name.